If you would, remain standing and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. As we can continue our study of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 24. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanter, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king... And behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, into whose hand he has given whatever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth, and there, sh there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone that was cut from the mountain by no human hand that broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life. Lord, may the lessons being taught to the king here be taught well to our own hearts. Would you push back against all the false kingdoms that we have built and that have been erected around us? And Lord, may the small stone of the gospel smash those things and so grow like a mountain. Lord, we pray that that would be true of us as a church and for our world. We want your glory to go out. Lord, shape us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I love Christmas. If I had my way, we, we would have held this text off until Christmas Eve. This is, I think, one of the best Christmas Eve texts in the Old Testament. I love, the, I love everything about Christmas. I love the lights. I love gathering in worship with you, candles. But underneath all of that, the reality that God would become man. The God who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power that he would, that he would be incarnate that he would come into the world in and out of the way in in Bethlehem. That's, that's what I love. Christ, so frail, so small, yet he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He holds all things together, and yet he's a crying child. That's what I love. That's hard for my mind to comprehend. It's hard for my heart to fully embrace and wrap around, but it's true. Here he is, the Lord of Lords, the little stone. That's what I love. That's why I love this passage so much. It, It tells us of this little stone that was carved from a mountain by no human hand that was cast against the kingdoms of this world. And it smashes them. And it brings them to nothing. But it doesn't just leave it there. This little stone, this little out of the way, insignificant looking thing grows like a mountain that covers the whole earth. This is the story of Daniel 2. And this is the story of Christmas. This is what God has done. He has sent his son into the world. I love Christmas because it 
It is absolutely political. It is about the rise and fall of empires. It's about the conquering king and his kingdom, which rules over all forever. This is where we find ourselves this morning. Remember where around 600-ish B.C., because of spiritual idolatry, God's people have been taken captive. Israel, the kingdom in the north, some 150 years or so before this, were taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire, never to fully return, at least not in the same way that they existed before. And after some time, Judah's rebellion also caused them to fall to Babylon. That's where we find ourselves in that fall. They had several deportations before they utterly leveled Jerusalem. Daniel was in the first one. Teenagers. We're told about four of them. There are likely tons and tons more, but this is the focus. We've seen that Daniel truly believed in God. He trusted God in exile. And he lived even in exile, for the glory of God as as this teenager, which, as we saw two weeks ago, he was, because of his um, commitment in his heart, he remained undefiled, unafraid, and he and his friends were utterly uncommon. And then a couple of weeks ago, we found out that the most powerful king in the land was having trouble sleeping. He's got all the power, he's got all the the money, he's got all the military might, he can bring all of that to bear against whomever he wants, and he's brought to nothing because of bad dreams. I think we're meant to see that and chuckle a little bit. Who's really in charge? Is Nebuchadnezzar's power really that great? He can't control his dreams. So he demands to know not only the interpretation, but the dream itself. And we saw that he sends out a decree of execution. You guys can't carry this out. You can't do this, so you all deserve to be torn limb from limb. And then we saw this captive teen exile, Daniel, go to his friends and say, hey, let's pray. We're under a death sentence. What can we do? And this vast um, difference between the power of God and insignificant exile Daniel and the power of the king. Vast, vastly different. And today we're going to look at the vision. This huge statue is telling us a story of kings and kingdoms. A massive head of gold representing the kingdom of Babylon. He he straight up tells him, this is you. This is your kingdom. This huge head of gold. And then we find this middle section chest and arms of silver this further down you have the the Medes and Persians and and then the kingdom of bronze Alexander the Great the the Greek Empire eventually subsumed by and, and consumed in the Roman Empire in the legs of iron iron mixed with clay down to toes that are very brittle It was all brought down, this huge, imposing creature thing that was frightening to behold was brought down by a little stone. 
wasn't cut by human hands. A tiny baby in a manger with the power to to topple kingdoms. A marginalized people called Christians or those of the way bring down empires. Here's the lesson up front. Every single one of us, we, we make a big deal about our own kingdoms. School is a big deal. Our latest cause is a big deal. This political event is a big deal. That cultural issue is a big deal. Yet we read scripture and see that everything else in life is going to topple. It's going to crumble. We see the kingdoms rise throughout history. Just study just a little bit of history. You see kingdoms rise and fall. Empires come and go. That the kingdom of God will never fail or fade. We see kingdoms in our own life rise and fall, and yet for some reason we think that these things in our life, things other than God himself, will actually last. The lesson given here to Nebuchadnezzar, we should learn well, nothing will outlast God. His kingdom will destroy ultimately all the kingdoms of this world and it will grow and expand like a vast mountain. Kingdoms of this world which look so great to us, which make great promises to us, are actually empty. They will utterly be exposed by the King of Kings whose kingdom will have no end. Today we'll look at the passage in two ways. First, a failing, um, falling, and failing statue, and second, a a little stone. So first, um, since since Esther and now Daniel, we've been asking the question, how do we live faithfully as exiles? And this is the lesson we have before us today. We live faithfully as we put our hope in the true king and his kingdom and recognize every other kingdom of this world for what it is, and that is falling and failing. Our hope Our true hope as a church, as the people of God in Christ, and every other kingdom that would want to offer us hope in something lasting, we can see is ultimately failing and falling down. So we have these these two kingdoms, but um, let's point out what happened. Daniel and his friends prayed and they were answered in verse 24. Do not, he comes to Ariok and says, don't destroy all the wise men of the land. Isn't that interesting? So he was in a position, he was put in a position where he could have, because he had, he had the goods by this point, he could have said, I know it alone, wipe all the other guys out, but he doesn't do that. He stays their executions. He says, don't kill them. I know what's going on. I found that fascinating and it, it made me think about God's covenant promise to Abraham and through Abraham to be a blessing to all the the earth, to all the nations. Daniel is carrying out God's covenant promise right here. He is blessing the nations. Don't kill them. I've got it. So here's what it made me think. We've been given God's covenant grace. How do we use that covenant grace to bless others? around us. 
Look at what he's doing. Look at what Daniel is doing. Don't kill them, he says. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me to the king. I've got the answer. And next we notice in 27 and 28, no wise men, enchanter, magician, astrologer can show the king the mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. It's interesting to note that early on for Daniel and his friends, they were learning utter dependence on God. How are they going to live? How in the world are these guys going to get by in a foreign land when everything is strange and they're learning all these languages and customs and and being asked to do impossible things? They're learning trust. What is it like to live life in exile? You must learn to trust God. You will not have all the answers. Things will happen to you in life that you don't know what to do. Learning to live life in exile is learning trust in God. There is a God in heaven, he says, who reveals mysteries. What Daniel is functionally saying is, I didn't do it. I can't produce like this, and no person can. But there is a God in heaven. Listen, I... I, What a vital way to to approach life when everything around you seems crazy. There is a God in heaven who has revealed himself. Do you ever feel like you're utterly unmoored in your life? Like the elevator floor that you thought was solid just drops, drops out. There is a God in heaven. He has made mysteries known to us. We should remember here Daniel's forefather to get a glimpse of where all this is going. Joseph, if you hadn't already made the connections, that's your afternoon assignment. Is go think about all the connections between Daniel and Joseph. Just think about them. Uh, you can make a list. It's, that's a fun exercise. Uh, That'll be a great uh, Sabbath exercise. So Joseph was also sold into a foreign land. He was forced to serve a foreign king. And like Daniel, he, he had distinct gifts. He was, he was incredible. From the time he was a kid, he could, he could understand dreams. He could rightly interpret them. So what should we anticipate is the connection, because I don't think any of that is um, lost to Jewish readers, and it shouldn't be lost to us. What is God saying? What was he saying when he revealed those things to Joseph? He was saying this, things look terrible, but I'm going to save you. Things look awful, but I'm coming to get you. Do you remember what happens after the Joseph cycle? Not long later, Genesis ends. What happens next? Some 400 years later, God comes after his people. After Daniel, what's going to happen? 400 years of silence. And then what's going to happen? The little stone is coming. A baby's going to be born. 
And he's going to cry out in the night to his mom and sound like any other baby. What is God saying? Sending this kid who understands dreams and visions and speaks to power. He's saying, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get my people. You're mine and I haven't forgotten you. Salvation is near. That's the connection of Daniel and Joseph. Salvation is coming. I think there's another important observation that we need to make here. How do these foreign kings interact with the God of heaven? Verse 30, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. God reveals himself to them and his plans. It is for us to pay attention. God is the only one who can do this. He's the only one who knows what's going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar could eventually see the reality of what God wanted him to see in this dream, but he he couldn't interpret it. So one, he didn't know what he was seeing, and two, he didn't know how to interpret what he had seen. He just knew that it rattled his cage. It made him afraid. We're meant to see here the futility of life apart from God. One commentator notes life is a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. That is so true. All the uncertainty. Imagine the uncertainty of life without Christ and certainty knowing Him and being known by Him in this world. What a difference that makes. Imagine that's not in your life. Imagine you have no anchor like that, no foundation like that, no belief system like that. Where do you go for hope? Where do you go when things go horribly wrong? Certainly, it's a, it's a dead-end street. So this brings us uh, to the falling s- statue. Notice the descriptors of the image, a great image, mighty and exceedingly bright, frightening of appearance. We noted earlier that this is the kingdom of man. Empires come and they go. We, we need to observe that man is capable of so much. Man is capable of incredible art. The statue was vast. Mighty, it's bright, it's frightening, man, and it's capable. Feats of engineering, feats of war that are incredibly vast and frightening and terrible. Vast um, implications of medicine. Just penicillin. How, how, did, how much did that change our world? Communication, travel, marvels all around our world that astound us and should astound us. Yet with all our prowess, we are accounted nothing before this God. Isaiah 40, 17, all the nations are as nothing before Him and they are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. We look at all these things and consider them great And to us they are, and again and again, God's word is saying, they're so small, they're so fleeting. That's what Psalm 2 is about. It it tells us that the nations rage and the people plot in vain, and he who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs, and he holds them in derision. Our greatest war, our greatest Art, our greatest medicine, the greatest 
thing that we've ever engineered and accomplished in that realm. It's all, it's, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Look at the statue as a whole, the, the beautiful head of gold, silver and bronze, iron, then finally feet of clay and iron, which begs a question. Who would build something like that? That sounds utterly upside down. The heaviest and densest and softest metal is at the top. And then it goes silver, then bronze, then iron that's brittle. And then by the time you get to the feet, iron mixed with clay. Who would, build, who would do that? That seems upside down. I'll tell you who we would. Man does that. This kingdom is utterly fragile. Its head is most valuable, but it's going down because the feet are going to cause it to fall. It's like Jenga. They were playing it the other night at the youth event. It's like you take all the pieces off the bottom and keep stacking them on the top, and it's going to go down. That's what the statue is like. We're meant to, we're meant to see that it's, it's, built, um, it's built backwards. It, 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 has, it lacks a foundation that will ultimately hold up. We do this all the time. We reverse the order. Notice verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. Listen, if, I don't know about you, but if you're a king, the last thing you want to hear is your kingdom is coming to an end. Another kingdom will come and take over. Babylon will not always be Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. There's several ways that we can think about this. Ralph Davis says this, quote, kings and kingdoms, presidents and dictators, democracies and tyrannies and monarchs come and go and enter into the landfill of history, end quote. I love that. The landfill of history. God is saying that all the kingdoms of this world are utterly fleeting. Every single one of us, because of the fall, are subject to the, this is coming after you. Listen, it's not just Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. It's you and your kingdom and me and mine. And it should show us that those things are fleeting after you. All these things that you think so highly of, that you give yourself to, will come to, to, to nothing. There is a divine after you that exists for every one of us. What is the kingdom that you have set up in your life? Is it your ability to get things done? Is it your efficiency? Is it your wealth? Is it your education? Is it your power? Is it your status? Is it your political party and the power that they put forward? Is it your job, your house, your car? We all have them. Listen, we all have them. We all have these little kingdoms that we're fully invested in over here. I think we're meant to be shown in this text that they're fleeting. They're fleeting. So much of what we build in this life is built on us. Our image matters. Our abilities matter. Our thoughts matter. Our opinions matter. Mine matters most. 
When we build our marriages, our families, again, our political systems, our jobs and nations, we, in this way, we build them on sand, iron mixed with clay. If those things are meant to hold your ultimate attention and hope, they're fleeting and they're going to go away. Joe Novenson, a PCA pastor, says when we do this, quote, we build monstrosities of mannequins that are bound to collapse. That's a great image. A monstrosity of a mannequin that's bound to collapse. This image goes from gold to dirt to clay. The problem with these kingdoms, the kingdom of man and all these other kingdoms outside the kingdom of God that we set up is that they're all very fragile. They're like that Jenga and the last piece you're trying to push out and the whole thing is going down. My dad used to tell me this all the time and I didn't appreciate it. But as time goes by, I've learned to appreciate what he would say. There's always someone better than you. He would beat me. I've told you all this before. He would beat all his kids mercilessly in ping pong, pool, you name it, sports, games, he would, he would beat us mercilessly and then he would tell us something like that. Hey, there's always someone better than you. And he, he wasn't being cruel. He, he would also hug us and love us, so don't catch that image. He was telling us something deeply true that he was telling us this reality. Your kingdom is not enough. You are not enough. And that is a beautiful thing to learn in your life. You need someone bigger than you. You need someone better than you. You need someone outside of you. That's a great lesson. So what happens to this big scary statue? It falls down. A little stone cut from a mountain is flung at it and it hits the feet and the whole thing falls. And not only does it fall, it gets smashed into pieces that get smashed into dust and the wind carries it away. It is utterly revealed as empty, empty, empty. So the question hanging over this vision then with all these falling empires, um, where do we look for a true king and a better kingdom? Because I think we have to reckon with that question because we, we know the reality of fallen kingdoms in our lives. Every single one of us knows that we've had something that we put our hope in over here that looked so big and great that we, we found out later it had clay feet and it's fallen over and turned to dust. What is it for you? What is your toppled kingdom? Because if you're a child of God, He still delights to do this. He loves to throw stones at our clay feet and topple our kingdom so that we might see Him and behold Him. So what, what has toppled in your life? And then that leads to this next question again. Where do we look for something that's lasting? What ultimately matters? There's an embedded warning in this text 
and it's this. Every other kingdom other than the one established by God himself is fleeting. Every other kingdom, the kingdoms that we build, the empires that we build, to the extent that we build them to the exclusion of God and his gospel, they're fleeting. They're going to go away, whether a political kingdom on the earth, our own personal kingdom, the message is clear. Something is coming to take its place. It's fleeting. Ecclesiastes 1 says it like this, vanity of vanities. It's this great Hebrew word, it's hevel. It literally means emptiness. Empty of empties, says the preacher. Empty of empties, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth is forever. What a devastating text. He's actually doing the very same thing Daniel is doing. He's saying life under the sun, the kingdoms that we build, that we say have all this meaning, the only meaning you're going to find is above the sun. It's God himself. It's God himself informing our lives that give ultimate meaning. This brings us to our second point, and this will be quicker, I promise. So we go from this falling statue to this this little stone carved with no human hand. This vision, verse 34, as you look, the stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. This, his vision goes from this vast thing to a rock quarry, a, a mountain, he eventually says. So his vision goes from this, this big thing that looks intimidating, it's frightening, And it goes from there to a mountain and a rock being cut out. Not with human hands. This is not a human endeavor. This isn't of human making. This isn't another kingdom of man. So at the same time as this impressive statue is on display, the kingdom of God is coming. It's much much less impressive on the outside than all these other kingdoms. It's not even metal. It's stone. It's a rock. It's small. It doesn't look great. The image has very little time for its physical appearance. It just says a rock was cut out of a mountain with no human hand. So insignificant. So nothing. Here's a gospel lesson. Here's here's a lesson for exile. So much of the kingdom of God comes quietly. It comes in unimpressive ways. No human hand can do it. This This is the absolute best part of doing ministry. When something great happens that nobody can take credit for. God alone is seen as great. And his kingdom is is brought to bear in ways that utterly matter. And then you see his glory. And his alone. Cut by no human hand. When we, his kingdom comes when we pray and God answers prayer. That is not the work of human hands. His kingdom comes quietly and silently. This massive, impressive statue and this tiny stone carved by God. Because of a a census, 
a young virgin pregnant woman and her husband go to pay taxes. It's it's a stone cut with no human hand. And there they go. They they go to Bethlehem and they go to this inn and there's not even room there because everybody else is there to pay their taxes too. And so they go out back and this is the time of all times and there she gives birth. Animals around. Shepherds come. Angels herald them out, out in the field. This little stone is flung into the world to utterly upend all of our kingdoms and tell us what's ultimately true. That these kingdoms are all fleeting and falling and failing and He came to give us something sure, something something full, something lasting. Himself. This seemingly insignificant birth would signal the death of every other kingdom of this world. They're all going to fall. He smashes the feet of clay and he topples them and he still does it today. He's still doing it. How often do we look at the lowly things of the world and scoff at them? If you're here today and you're a believer in Christ, you, you listen, we all have to admit that we are unimpressive. We are unimpressive. If we think otherwise, we did not hear our New Testament lesson that Clint read earlier. It is very clear. It is very, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. A little stone. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You are unimpressive and so am I. A little stone cut out by the hand of God, cast against the kingdoms of this world. The whole thing crumbles. Don't be deceived by worldly power. Don't be deceived by your own power. Don't be deceived by what is vast and scary and might even be beautiful. The whole image presented here. Be impressed by God and His work and the little stone. Notice the contrast to the stone, verse 35, I think the most pivotal verse in the whole dream. Then then the iron, the clay, the bronze, silver, gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. Like I said, they, they were proven empty and they blow away in the wind so that not a trace of them could be found. It's totally gone. And then it says this, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Does that sound familiar? This was God's program all along. That's, that's language straight out of Genesis 1. Fill the earth and subdue it. Cover the earth. Who is the one who is accomplishing that vision? It's the great mountain. God is accomplishing His vision right here in Daniel. He's smashing all the kingdoms of the world and the little stone grows and grows and grows and it's a mountain that covers the entire earth. It's incredibly impressive. Remember the vision of Isaiah 6 and the shout of the angels? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's what's going on in Daniel. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
That's another important lesson that we should learn about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. God tools the kingdom of man. He uses unjust, unwise, and unconverted men and women to do His will, and He uses them all the time. He's using Nebuchadnezzar to do His will. Unconverted. God tools man. He he uses them for His purposes. He raises up kings and kingdoms and casts them down at His will. Daniel gives the interpretation of the whole thing. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. He's, He's saying God has done all of this. You are a great king, Nebuchadnezzar. God has done all of it. You wouldn't have a thing without him. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to disperse his people. God raised him up to this position and gives him the right to rule. This does not mean that God sanctions his moral policies. It means that God is in control. And we should read the very same thing in the life of Christ. He is in control when Herod and Pilate put Jesus to death. He is in control. That wasn't an accident in the kingdom of God. It wasn't a whoops. It was the little stone casting down the kingdom of man. God does not condone torture and unjust murder. But he used it to save us. And in a moment we'll commune at the table. That communion is glorious and it is such a great thing. But if you, if you actually take time to think about it, it's devastatingly horrible. His body broken. His blood shed. For us. God's kingdom is growing. It's coming. It's it's growing now at Grace Presbyterian Church. It's coming silently and quietly. One day it's going to be loud. One day it will be seen. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, yeah, unjust, unwise rulers. One day in full. Which kingdom matters to you? The impressive and even intimidating kingdom of this world. It's got clay feet. It topples easily. It's going down and is eventually going to turn to dust and blow away in the wind. The only kingdom that matters is the little stone. The the kingdom of Christ formed by no human hand. He has been cashed. He has smashed the feet of this world. Every single thing that is so crazy to you. Christ is here offering stability. I think this text does a lot. It does a lot of heavy lifting. It puts the whole world on notice. It's like, here's your notice. All these things that seem great to you are going to fall. And the little stone is is what matters. And I would say the glory of God and His kingdom coming. That's what matters. Don't think of the kingdom uh, of Christ as, as only uh, coming, only future. No, he's broken to the world. He has come, and he will come back. Again, I really wish this uh, would have been a Christmas text. Uh, the lyrics from Handel's Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
That's what's real. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, that you have broken into this world. Uh, Would you upend um, the ways that we get this wrong? The ways that we think um, our little kingdoms will last forever and ever and we give ourselves to those things. Would you shape us by a lasting kingdom that will never fail, never fade? Remind us, Lord, that you will ultimately reign forever and ever. Your kingdom is already broken in and it is growing, Lord. We pray that your kingdom would come in our lives, in our homes, in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world, as it is in heaven. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.